You're listening to Why We Do What We Do. Welcome to Why We Do What We Do. Your hosts today are Shane and Ryan O, who have an amazing interview with Dr. Sagai, who is the founder of the PBIS model. With that, take it away, Shane. Cool. All right. So um, we are here with George, Dr. Sagai. Uh, and he is a proponent for the positive behavior support model. We wanted to talk about that a little bit and kind of talk about uh, what it was in, in general. And I'm definitely going to let him explain that more because uh, he's the expert and we are simply just asking questions. <laughs> so um, so we, we brought him on because we want to talk about it. And so the question to you, Dr. Sagai, you want to introduce yourself? Tell us everybody, tell everybody uh, a little bit about who you are and, and kind of what, 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 what kind of work you're doing. Yeah, so I'll go backwards. I currently co-direct the National PBIS Center, which is funded by the Department of Education. And um, my co-directors are Tim Lewis and Rob Horner. And we've been, we're finishing up our 20th year as a federally funded center. And the original center started at the University of Oregon um, 20 years ago. And now it is shared between the University of Connecticut, University of Missouri, and University of Oregon. And I'm at the University of Connecticut, where I've been for the last 13 years. Uh, I was at the University of Oregon prior to that for about 21 years, kind of helping kind of get things started. And I can tell you a little bit more about that history as we go. Uh, the short story about my history as I'm a graduate from the University of Washington. And uh, I got my ABA start, if you will, in the precision teaching world, uh, working with Owen White, Nora Herring, and others and um, kind of moved into the ABA world through the PT kind of uh, context and uh, have been pretty much a ABA or working within special education, working with kids with emotional behavioral disorders in the public schools most of my life. And that's sort of the context for the start of how PBIS got started. That's great. That's great. So I, I've never, I've never personally worked in a school. So I always, that's always kind of an interesting dynamic for me. I don't have that, that area of expertise, which is, it's, it's kind of interesting to see that dynamic and see those systems approaches and, and find out, I recently found out that some schools in uh, Florida still allow paddling. So I was kind of surprised by that. <laughs> so the yeah. fact that that still exists. Corporal punishment is that. actually on the books and legal in something like 20 states right now. And some of those states actually engage in the practice and, um, it's amazing that it happens. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, we want to get into that. Let's hit real quick if we can the there's two things. I want to dive a little bit into that history if we sure. can of like where where this where this started. So let me do it kind of do it in two ways. One is just to kind of give you the quick start for where this came from and then second of all how the PBS PBIS kind of language or terminology got started. So I, I mentioned to you I'm a special educator and I've always worked in special education working with kids with uh, emotional behavioral disorders. Uh, way back in the, in the late 80s, probably before you guys were even born, uh, we started working in schools, working with kids with emotional behavioral disorders. And what we learned is that the environment in which we were doing individualized supports was affected by the larger context. So if you're in a classroom with 28 kids and you write a great function-based plan for that student, the likelihood of that plan working or not was depending on how chaotic the classroom was. So we started looking at classroom systems and school-wide systems as the place in which we're doing individual behavioral support. And we got really interested in the interplay between classroom management factors and our ability to implement individualized plans. You know, and, and another way to think about that is, you know, you build a 
a plan for uh, for an individual in a group home. You've got an individual plan, but the, the kitchen, the dining room, the bedroom, all those places have an effect on how likely it is that that individual plan is going to work or not, especially with other individual students. So we were, got really fascinated by that, by that interaction. Um, two other of my colleagues, Jeff Colvin and Ed Kameanui. Ed Kameanui is a direct instruction reading guy, and Jeff Colvin is a classroom school-wide discipline guy. And we started working on looking at school-wide discipline. Now, here's an ABA or single subject guy looking at whole systems now and trying to understand how to apply to those settings. And what we learned is that classroom climate, school-wide climate, affects our ability to work with individual kids. Not a big brainer, no brainer, but at the same time, we started doing research in that area. So in about 1996 or so, we got this opportunity from the federal government to apply for this grant. So here's the answer to your question about PBS and PBIS. Prior to 1996, PBS, Positive Behavioral Support, existed, well-established. Ted Carr, Wayne Saylor, Duran, all those guys had said, you know what, we're in the world of ABA, but in order to make that sort of educationally and socially valid, we need to bring in some of the sort of the, the values of our science into the world. They call that PBS. So that was the merging of sort of the social validation world with positive behavioral support with, with adults with disabilities, especially severely handicapped. So Rob Horner and I became partners. And Rob, as you know, had worked quite a bit with, kids, with adults with severe disabilities and worked in group homes and work area, uh, work centers. And we got together and said, well, let's take PBS, ABA, and apply it to school. And let's take our knowledge about school-wide discipline from Ed Kimmy and Ewing and the instructional side and merge those together. So here's the, the, the interesting thing. It's 1996, the application came out. In the application, the application said, you are applying for the Center on Positive Behavioral Interventions and Support. Prior to that reauthorization of IDA, that term did not exist. All of a sudden, it popped up. Somebody wrote the RFA with that language in it. Not an intervention. It's Somebody made it up. Sort of looked like PBS, but wasn't. Okay. So we applied for the grant, and we were fortunate enough to get it. So we went back and said, can we change the name of the center? PBIS is confusing with PBS. PBIS doesn't make sense. It, or, you know, some, somebody made it up. And if you shorten it and call it PBIS, it just doesn't sound right to call it PBIS. So we, but we couldn't change it. The federal government and the legislation required its name. So PBIS became the brand for the center. 20 years later, I'm bragging, our team was pretty successful in being able to roll this out. And so PBIS became a thing, an entity, just like PBS, PBS was for the severe intellectual disabilities world. So that's an important thing to remember because PBIS is not an intervention, not a practice. It's the center that was formed, and it became a center because of our ability to roll it out. And that's how we got started, by this label. Now, the ABA world, of course, is saying, well, oh, what is this PBIS thing? You know, it's, it's not ABA. And that's where a lot of conversations occurred around, well, what's, what's it really mean to have PBIS, and is it really helpful to the field, and so forth? And we can kind of talk about that a little bit later. But um, now PBIS has become a thing that we have to focus on by saying it's an intervention. It's not an intervention or curriculum, 
but instead of the system by which we do business. Um, and I like to tease about once a month or so, we get an email from somebody saying, I have a kid who kicks me in the ankle. Would you please PBIS her, please? And we have to continue to say that PBIS is not an intervention. It's a system for identifying the best intervention for those kinds of problems. <laughs> it's exactly right. It's not something you can buy. It's not a, it's not a you know, manualized package. It's not an intervention. It's a way of doing business. For schools in particular. Okay, cool. So, so going back to talking about that that idea that um, you had mentioned earlier, ABA and PBS as like a, you kind of mentioned them they're intertwined and, and it's like that kind of world. Um, I kind of wanted to just clarify that because I hear a lot in in my own practices, PBS is not ABA or ABA is not PBS or you kind of hear these funny little discussions in the world where maybe people don't understand what PBS is. So could you clarify kind of like specifically right. what PBS is or kind of how PBS and ABA are, are intertwined a little bit? Yeah. So I consider myself an ABA or I am a behavior analyst. I view the world that way. I operate that way and so forth. And much of the work I did with individual kids is well grounded in applied behavior analysis. I mean, that's the way I think. That's my toolbox, et cetera. Um, however, as we got into classrooms and schools, what we found is that the behavioral uh, technology, if you will, got in the way of us being able to get teachers in particular to engage in best practice. And uh, I got easily kind of shaped into using non-behavioral language to be able to communicate behavioral technology. And uh, I, at first I really struggled with that, but what I learned is that our technology was more likely to be embedded within a general education classroom if we could translate it in terms that were usable within that environment, right? And so I like to always say that, you know, I'm a behavior analyst and I use the general case approach to behavior analysis, but I apply it in a way that is gonna be more likely to be implemented with some degree of fidelity. So if you look at the, uh, the, the, the sort of the, the main constituent of PBIS errors, they are behavior analysts in their operation and their toolbox. And I have to admit there are people who call themselves PBISers outside that circle who apply different theoretical frameworks or you know whatever you want to call it, conceptual models to PBIS. And that's where we get in trouble because it's different. And it's just like the ABAers who go outside of the technology of ABA and call themselves behavior analysts. I think you have that same problem. Um, but I learned that I, in about 20 years of my career, I have been unsuccessful in teaching general educators to become behavior analysts. In the last 20 years of my career, we've done a pretty good job, I'm bragging a little bit, of getting the behavioral technology into classrooms without them knowing that it's actually behavioral technology. Yeah, yeah. No, so, and that's great. I was just listening to a podcast um, about precision teaching and talking about uh, Ogden Lansley and how he had discussed frequency and uh, and how frequency was created to be able to translate terminology to teachers and bring precision teaching to teachers. I thought that was so interesting because it's like because the 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 individual that's being interviewed was so worked up about it. She's like, 
you know, it is not, there's no difference between rate and frequency. It is the same thing. And it is literally just talking about trans, an issue with translation and getting that information out to teachers. So I know that I've had that in, a, in an interdisciplinary team, being able to discuss positive and negative reinforcement. Just the, the term negative reinforcement always comes up. And it's just like, no, I, I had that moment where I'm like, that's not, that's not it. I had catch myself as a behavior analyst going, no, that's not right. That's not how that is. But having to kind of figure out how to translate that so I don't come across as a jerk. Right, right. <laughs> Yeah, and that's the struggle we all we all have. I mean, it's it, you know, I can go into a classroom and say, you know, nice job establishing stimulus control there. You know, it's very clear that behavior occurs under those conditions. That doesn't work very well. It's much easier to say, you know what, you've got a pretty clear routine here, and those kids are learning how to respond at the right time, right places, you know, and so forth. And it's that kind of translation that stays true to the technology, but it's understandable by kids and families and whatnot. Now, I could be convinced that, you know, everybody should have the technology, but, you know, it's so hard to get that transfer to occur, and that's been our biggest challenge. The same thing is true of the negative reinforcement, positive reinforcement, punishment thing, you know. People don't understand that reinforcement is increasing, but they don't understand the two different contexts in which, you know, you're talking about that. But if you say to somebody, you know what, you just sent the kids to the classroom. Why do you think they were, I mean, to the office? Why do you think they were sent to the office? Well, you want to get away from that difficult work. Great. What are you going to do about that next time to keep him from escaping that difficult work? It's easier to talk about that way than to say, you know what, you're just you're you're positive, you're negatively reinforcing that behavior. You know, so let's get to the intervention and let's get to a change in kid performance and not get stuck on the kind of language. And again, it's my job to make sure that we're staying true to the technology and that we're actually using student behavior as a way to interpret the success of that intervention. Um, because otherwise it becomes, you know, something else. That's cool. So yeah, we, we actually did an episode, I think it was episode 14 that we covered like what is behavioral technologies. Um, and we, we looked in the classification of how, um, largely how Janet Twyman and, and others look at it of there's your technology of tools and your technology of process tools being all your gadgets, software, hardware, your technology of process being your, um, everything that we're kind of talking about here now, right? Um, contingencies and understanding things and whatnot. So it sounds like those things being adopted are much easier to say, we don't need to teach the technical stuff behind it. And we just need to um, focus on what's actually working. Right, right. So let me, let me kind of do our little spin on it. I mean, you're absolutely right about what you're describing. You know, we like to consider PPIs as this process, a framework for doing business. And then somebody says, well, what's the business? And we say, well, there are four basic tools in our toolkit. One is everything has to be linked to student outcomes. So any decision you make has to be based on what you want the kid to be able to do or should do or whatever the words are. And that has to be the, the, the sort of the grounding criterion for judging decisions that we make. But there are three tools that go around those outcomes. One is use of data. Second is evidence-based practices or technology. And the third are the systems component, which is the implementation of fidelity side. So for us, practices are what the kid experiences or the client, and systems are what the implementer experiences. So implementation of fidelity or accuracy of implementation is the supports we have to give to the clinician or the teacher. The practices are what the kid has to experience. It needs to be the best one aligned with the outcome. And the data are used to judge whether or not this is the right practice, whether or not the practice is working, Data are used to determine whether or not there's high levels of implementation fidelity on the part of the clinician, you know, and so forth. So it all interacts with each other. In my world of special ed, 
which is where I stole that. We do that anytime we write an IEP, current level of functioning, data, short and long-term objectives, outcomes, interventions, link to those outcomes, and systems are the IEP and the implementation, you know, and the team and all that garbage. All that is basically outcomes, data, practices, and systems. So when I approach a school, we do the same thing. Show me your data for your discipline. What interventions are you doing now in your discipline practices? You know, uh, what kind of supports are teachers getting to make sure they implement correctly and so forth? Always those four elements. So I, I like that. There was there was something that came to mind. So I've, I've done some consulting or worked in school districts um, myself in the past. Still do a little bit. Um, there's uh, it either happens a lot or there's a perception of there's things coming in and out um, every few years. Right. They, they kind of this life cycle. And then, so I'm kind of curious what your thoughts are on that, comma, how, are there any like lessons learned on um, how to successfully roll these systems out? Like that systems level is very interesting because there's, there's been success here, right? Is there any kind of quick thoughts or tidbits for people interested in that? So I'll give you the big picture first and kind of narrow down to what you're asking. Cool. For the last 20 years, we've been collecting the number of schools we've been training on PBIS. And there's about 26,000 schools across the United States that have received training on at least Tier 1, meaning the universal interventions. And those 26,000 schools, our focus is on leadership teams within the school. Now, the reason I say that is because the rollout is rolled through those teams. We very rarely do school-wide professional development activities it's through the team. We want to give them the behavioral capacity to roll out the interventions or practices that the teachers are going to give to the kids. And I say that on purpose because that has been really important to the implementation fidelity factors that we consider. Of those 26,000 schools for Tier 1, we would estimate roughly around 50%, 40-50% of those schools are implementing with high degrees of fidelity. So 80% or more on the checklist that we have for you know, are you doing this or not? Now, one, one could argue me saying 40% is not very high. But from a scaling perspective, when you think about 26,000 schools, 40% of a rollout of an intervention or initiative at that level, it's pretty um, impressive kind of an outcome. <clears throat> at least that we're, that's what we're told from the uh, OBM type people about, you know, can you really have an impact? So going to your question then, you know, the what we learned about the rollout is you've got to have a team that increases their behavioral capacity to implement across the school. Shane, Ryan, or George cannot go into a school and train all staff and then walk away and assume that they're going to have enough fluency to be able to implement and sustain that over time. So you've got to give the capacity to the team. The team is the one that rolls it out. Now, to buffer against other stuff coming in, we do two things that are pretty important, I think. One is we try to get the team to organize what they do into that three-tiered continuum logic. What do you give to all kids? What do you give to groups of kids? What do you give to individual students? Now, my world traditionally has been tier three. What do I do with individual kids in trying to build individualized plans? Sometimes I've done group-based social skills lessons tier two. And then now I just spend most of my time on what do we do for classroom-wide and school-wide systems. Now, 
reason that's important is because we want teams to select interventions across those three tiers that are the smallest number of interventions that can have the biggest effect and that are linked programmatically across the continuum. So if I give Tier 1 to Ryan, and Ryan does not respond to that Tier 1 intervention, school-wide social skills, then I move him up to Tier 2 to get group-based intervention. If he doesn't succeed with that, then I move Ryan up to a function-based individualized plan because he needs something more intensive. Yeah. But the interventions have to be linked across. How do I know which interventions to pick? I pick those that are most aligned with the outcomes, outcome yeah. data practice systems, that are important for school-wide. So there's got to be a link between all those parts. We also have a rule that nobody likes, which is if you choose to adopt a new curriculum, so I'm going to adopt the good behavior game, then you have to stop doing two other things. And the reason why that's important is because you've got to gain back minutes to be able to engage in the new practice. You cannot continue to do more and more practice. ABA is really quite good because at the individual client or student level, we start with a function-based approach, we align our interventions based on that function and so forth. So we're very narrow in how we organize those interventions. That's not true in general education. We tend to just throw interventions. They're shiny, they're laminated, you know, they're on TV, let's, let's do it. And we don't, we're not strategic about it. Same thing you probably heard from people like Janet Twyman about very literacy. We do the same thing. We just pick interventions that we think are going to teach kids to read because it sounds good, but we are strategic about picking those that are evidence-based, conceptually sound, and actually prove to work with the kids that we're assigning them to. I forgot your initial question, but, <laughs> but it is about trying to become more streamlined in the implementation in order to improve implementation. Yeah, no, I was, yeah, I was just trying to get at like, what are some tips and tricks maybe if someone was like, I want to work on the systems level, like what are the key ingredients of making it work? And you trickled those through there. So that's, that's perfect. Right. If a school approaches me, I ask those same, I always ask those same questions. What would you like your school to look like? Well, I want kids to be more respectful. Well, what do they have to do to be more respectful? Is this something for all kids or a few kids or individuals? Show me your data that reflects where the problem is. What interventions are you doing now? Are they evidence-based? You know, and do they align with those outcomes? And so I use those four elements as a way to organize my problem solving with the team or what have you. Yeah. So, so you mentioned, um, you mentioned at one point you said like, we do a really good job of like that individualized treatment, right? That like on that, on that individual focused treatment, we do a really good job with our function-based interventions and, and spending time with, I think behavior analysts do a really good job of that to a degree, you know, and I think that we, we spend a lot of our time training in that, in that element, especially with our ethics code saying individualized treatment, individualized procedures, you know, don't copy and paste and that whole thing. Um, and I have found that in my own practice, it has been really interesting to see the shift from going to, from individual treatment settings to this idea of a systems-based approach or um, trying to implement behavior change on uh, with, with group behaviors and group contingencies or uh, with with organizations that are trying to scale to larger, uh, to impact larger communities. So uh, what would what kind of tips would you give to somebody who is, has spent all their time working in that individualized setting? What How would you get them into that systems-based approach? Yeah, and I know that you don't have as much, you haven't had that classroom context, but I like to use the classroom context as a way to kind of explain that in two ways. One is, when I was a special ed teacher, I was in the old days, you know, and I had a 
self-contained, quote, classroom for kids with problem behaviors. Uh, I worked in the middle school, and at the, in those days, um, I would get all the Shanes and the Ryans who were kicked out of their classroom. It was basically an alternative program. And I was trained to do individualized planning in a precision teaching kind of model. And I would do 15, 20 individualized plans. Well, what I quickly learned is I could not, as a teacher, manage 15 to 30 plans in a, from 8 to 3 o'clock every day. So, but what I learned is that, oh, my gosh, look at Ryan and Shane. They're both working on anger management. Wouldn't it be more efficient if I had a small group with Ryan, you know, Shane and Karen and had a group-based lesson that would accomplish the same outcome, right, and be more efficient with my time and minutes, which now moves into Tier 2 kinds of intervention. And if it works for those kids in that context, then go for it. If it doesn't, then obviously stay with the, with the individual kid thing. So that's been helpful for me because I have been so drilled into individual kids that I fail to think about the fact that maybe I can deliver the same intervention efficiently with three kids sitting there as opposed to four, or as to one, I mean. Or I can do it in a classroom context from you know, 10, 15 to 11, 15 during math, and I can still do those individualized planning strategies but be more uniform across the four kids. So that's where the system kind of logic becomes important for me as an a behavioral analyst who is focused on individual kids. The other way I like to think about this is here I got this kid, Ryan. I got this beautiful individualized plan I wrote for him. And I say to him, we're going to implement this in your fourth grade classroom. So I take the plan and I take Ryan back to the classroom and there are 26 kids in that room with a general education teacher who has, at best, gotten a course work, some coursework on classroom management, but nothing on function-based support. So I say to him or her, here's the plan. Do it with Ryan. And she says, I have 25 other kids. How do you expect me to do that? That's when we learn that we really have to start thinking about looking at classroom management systems and how they interact with individual plans or group-based plans. Tier 2 has become really important for merging individual plans with, with classroom plans. And the other way to think about this is I can take Ryan and his plans, and if, if the other 25 kids do not have good social skills, the teacher is not going to be successful implementing that individual plan for Ryan. So i got to have something in place for those other 25 kids, which is where kind of proactive classroom management comes into play. So I love so we teach, I teach, not now, but I used to teach a lot of coursework on ABA. And it was school-based ABA, which meant, how are you going to teach classroom teachers to do ABA with 30 kids? You know, what does that look like? Um, it's not about just doing individual kids. It's about doing it with 30 kids. How do you teach social skills from an ABA perspective, direct instruction perspective, to 30 kids? Or if you're high school, 175 kids, you see you know, in your biology, you know, beginning biology course. But it becomes pretty tricky. Yeah, and I think that that's, I think that that perspective is really useful for even people who are working in home doing, you know, I coming from a, a home and community background and looking at this idea that, you know, I've written, and I think you said it best, I've written this perfect behavior program, right? And I'm gonna, I, I, it's it's a couple pages, maybe 20 pages, and I, it's got the interventions are so perfect and they're so specific. And I hand it to a mom and she goes, are you serious? <laughs> you know, like, 
who do you think like I you know it's it's or data collection procedures where we say hey you know what uh, here's here's a data sheet here's how we collect da 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 and so and families can't do it and so the question you know right. at that point is 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 you know as, as great as this plan is is it really does it fit the context and I think that's kind of the the goal right is this exactly idea right. of context like is what we're doing appropriate for the context that we're working in right and and my bias is that you know it's great to do sort of sit down with a kid. For 30 minutes and do this one-on-one -on -one with him or her but those skills have to be generalizable to the natural context and that doesn't happen as we all know without some kind of structures in place in those generalized settings so that means the the mother the siblings the father you know the grandmother they all have to learn how to catch the kid doing the behavior they got to reinforce it they got to prompt it so the what we do in that 30 minute high intensity interaction also has to have a component to it that says, what are we going to do in the natural environment, which is what you were describing, Shane. And if I think about schools, that's the same thing. Hallway, cafeteria, bus. I've got to get, I'm using Ryan, I've got to get Ryan's pro-social skills um, occasioned in these other environments as well. Otherwise, why, what, what good is my little 30-minute lesson going to be? Right? right. So it is pretty important to think about crisscrossing those settings yeah and i'm glad you use ryan as an example because he's always a problem in all of our meetings and stuff. I hear you. that's what i was told <laughs> um one thing i did want to ask you about uh specifically because we we still see this especially being in the south um uh like everybody you know talks about i hear the term old school a lot you know it's like oh if, if if you know like back in the day we did this or you know i'm old school so we did this and i had mentioned earlier about the paddling and um one of the schools that i have had the uh the pleasure of stepping into has has graciously called their paddle the board of education and uh which is just a very old school mentality for sure but um one of the critiques that i hear about pbs in general or uh or pbis any of that 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 context is that um punishment is is totally off limits any sort of use of any kind of punishment is off limits and and it's it's all reinforcement and 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 while the research says like yes reinforcement is definitely it can be more effective and and it's definitely it, it does a better job of teaching um i did want to talk about that punishment piece because i think people are so apt to use it and, and are so readily, like they, they want to use punishment, they want to use timeout, they want to send kids out of classrooms, they want to do suspensions. And I kind of wanted to talk about just like the punishment piece or like the perspective of punishment in that, right. in those contexts. So, you know, just like any ABA or, you know, our context is, you know, do no harm. And that's an important kind of part of how we do business. And, but we also find that one of our first uh, ways of getting started with a school is to acknowledge that the discipline handbook the discipline system is actually okay. You need to have a response to rule violation as long as you do no harm. Most kids, many kids, are going to respond to being told, no, you just, running is unacceptable in the hallway, or, you know, you guys both got into a physical fight, you need to go down to the office, there's a consequence for that. Most kids are going to understand that there's a process or a consequence to those behaviors. And they will probably stop doing it, most kids, in the future. In that case, it's punishment. You know, we administered something and there's a decrease in the behavior in the future. And I'm okay with that. We have teachers who say, no, Ryan, you need to keep your hands to yourself. And Ryan stops doing that. It's a punisher. It's administered. The behavior decreases. It's the kids who don't respond that I worry about. Right? right. So that's one part. So I say to Ryan, no, stop doing that. He doesn't respond. So I yell a little louder. He still doesn't stop. I yell a little louder. I point at him. I say, stand up in class, you know, and I humiliate him. 
it still doesn't stop, or it does stop temporarily and comes back. That's what I worry about, which is the extension beyond what the code or the handbook describes. It's, and so that means there's got to be two things in place. One is a, you know, a clear understanding of what the discipline handbook is for and how it functions and for whom. And second of all, there's got to be a proactive component, which you already mentioned. You've got to be able to teach Brian how to manage his anger acceptable. You've got to teach Ryan how to problem solve. You've got to teach how to, Ryan how to conflict manage. And you've got to have some proactive replacement responses that are equally as effective and efficient and reinforced. Otherwise, these punishers are going to be a failed for most kids. But the kids who don't respond, that's where Tier 2 and Tier 3 have to be in place. And a good way to think about that is in many of our schools, we like to set up a, if this is the second time Ryan's been sent to the office, then we need to shift to another intervention. Not more discipline. We need to shift to another intervention. Yeah, something's not working. Function-based plan or whatever, right? There's got to be something in place for us, the adults, to respond differently. We have to have a replacement. And that's what's most important about the process. So we acknowledge that there are some, quote, mild, aversive, you know, punishers that we use. No, Ryan, stop doing that. But you got to go back and say, you know, Ryan, this is, we'd much rather you raise your hand if you have a question. Thank you for, you know, whatever. There's got to be that alternative in place, and the teachers have to reflect that. If all they use is no, that's a problem, because you have all the negative side effects, as we all know, that are associated with that. So I really like how you, you focus on two things there. I guess my two main points that I pulled from that was that the interventions, like we need to look at do, new interventions, and that's tied to the teacher's behavior. One thing we've talked about on this podcast uh, numerous times is just like it's not one thing that is going to cause some sort of influence or something to happen, and it's always going to be bidirectional. Like all of these things are interconnected. Um, so it's beautifully said. Thank you. <laughs> you know, 20 years ago when we started, one of the – the coolest thing that my colleague Rob Horner said we had to do was to continually engage in some form of uh, implementation fidelity assessment. And in the beginning, those were just self-assessments that we asked the school teams to do or the principal to do or whatever. 20 years later, now we have some validated tools that we use for all three tiers now. And, you know, that has been the most important thing because it goes to your point, Ryan. The adults have to be held accountable for their behaviors just like the kids do. And frankly, and I'll go public with it, most of the work I do today, nowadays, is with the adult behavior, not with kid behavior. Because if I know the adults engage in better practice, the greater likelihood the kids are going to benefit from that. And just like for the uh, kids, I look at this teacher, you know, Shane, and I say, Shane, you know what, you're heavily, you're heavily negatively reinforced by that kid's behavior. Every time the kid engages in that behavior, that you kick them out and then you're you know, it works for you. And I don't say that to them. But then what that means is I have to give Ryan an alternative response that serves the same function, but leave, you know. And so I do the same function-based approach to, to the adult behavior as I would with yeah. the kids. That's fantastic. I mean, and, and that's perfect because I think that, that getting getting people who are implementing programs to understand the function of their own behavior can make a world of difference. Um, you know, talking to families and stuff in homes, um, I just had a conversation the other day where I was talking to a family. I was like, well, why do you do that? And they're like, well, I don't want to be embarrassed in public. Great. That's, I figured out it's, that's it. It's that simple. That's the function, right? Like it's all negative reinforcement. You right. know, reinforce this kid all, all, you know, and give him, give him what he wants. You know, at the end right. of the day, all you're doing is just creating this like cycle of problem. So. And, and that's an important point because 
one thing we've done around sort of function stuff is said that we've, you heard me say it a number of times, I said we take a function-based approach. And what I mean by that is that all levels of the continuum, we look at functions. And at tier one, you don't have to do a formal functional behavioralness assessment with manipulations to know the kid is being sent to the office to get out of work, right? So you can take a function-based problem-solving approach and start with an initial hypothesis pretty quickly and confirm it because the kid's been sent out 20 times in the last month. We don't need to have a manipulation to confirm that. But at tier three, because we have a, may have a harder time understanding the function of the kid's behavior across a number of different settings, we might need to do more systematic FDA. So, you know, we've tried to say that function-based assessment fits into the continuum with respect to intensity, just like interventions would. And because somebody says, well, you want me to do a functional assessment on that classroom? And I say, yeah. And they say, you mean I need to manipulate? You no, know, you don't have to manipulate anything. Just take a step back and take a look at what's going on. And tell me your best hypothesis about why those four kids on the left-hand side continue to talk during class. Well, there it's peer maintained. Well, okay, great. So what are you going to do based on peer maintenance, you know, peer attention? So it's, it's getting people to think that way is, is more the outcome that we're most interested in. And it sounds like uh, what's what's interesting because I had I had recently um, been digging into some of the OBM material, and it sounds like just like from that systems approach, that's a lot of it is getting people who are implementing stuff, like the people who are in charge of those systems or in charge of those groups of people, to just get them to understand like. You don't have to do a whole lot of changes. You don't have to make these big sweeping intervention changes. You can tweak a couple things that you're already doing, and it would be far more effective. And and you see that a little bit in that in that tiered system where, um, you know, in that in that in that tier one where, uh, you know, you have somebody who is like a, you know maybe a manager at a restaurant who's trying to get the the wait staff to be able to you know, stop dropping straws on a table. You know, they're trying to save money on straws. So they're trying to get the whole team to do that. So what behavioral changes can they implement on that level that would impact the whole system without having to do this really big formal assessment? Right. And I'm, I'm glad you mentioned OBM because if I think about our implementation stuff, you know, the how do we get implemented at the state, district, school level, we've been heavily influenced by the OBM group. We've been heavily influenced by the kind of implementation National uh, Research Network that Ian Fixon and Karen Blasey kind of run out of North Carolina. Uh, they've taken the OBM content and they said, you know what, implementation occurs in sort of phases. You know, classrooms and schools, they start exploring an idea, then they initially implement, then they go to full implementation, then they scale it up. Well, that's important because that says implementation is not unidimensional, it's actually scaling. You know, they say that there are certain drivers, I would call those functions, you know, that affect implementation, you know, and how, how it works, you know, training and coaching and evaluation. Those drivers are affect, affect how well implementation goes, uh, leadership teams and so forth. So it's been pretty important. I think the mo one of the most important influences for me, as, and I, I can't quote it exactly, but in, Skinner talks about organizations as being made up of individuals. And the, the behaviors of those individuals represent the organization. So the more consistent, common, effective, whatever those are, the behaviors of the individuals collectively of the organization, the more defined the organization is. So if I think about schools, and you've got 50 faculty members, if those faculty members aren't engaged in the same behaviors towards the same outcome, if they're not, you know, and maintained by the same reinforcers, that school is not going to be an intact organization. 
So we approach schools by saying schools don't change, but the members of the school change and degree to which they all change in the same direction, we've got a successful organization. Now, what's important about that is we're getting into the school climate world now. And the school climate says there's negative climates and there's positive climates. And what we've said is that, you know what, you've got to go back. And if it's a negative climate, that means most of those adults are behaving in ways that are dysfunctional. And they're all moving in the same direction, called negative. Now we need to convert, you know, so forth. So the individual behavior analysis is so important for us to be able to problem solve the organizational change required. How much, like, how does, how do, how do y'all approach any uh, disagreement or confrontation? And like, you know, like, how is that handled in this PBIS model? If someone, you know, an individual teacher or, because um, it sounds like someone knocks on the door uh, somewhere and says, hey, we're kind of interested in you all helping us. But I mean, nothing's ever smooth. So do you guys have th- lessons learned there or certain certain ways in which you handle that? Does that make sense? So let me give you a quick little example, then I'll kind of highlight the principles behind it. So a school district comes to us, let's say I'm just making a, let's say there are 15 schools in the district, and the superintendent says, we want to do this thing called PBIF, and we want every school in our district of 15 schools to do PBIF. And we're saying, we're happy to assist you in building a system where you can build continuums of support inside your school, but it's going to require a district-level team, district-level investment commitment, blah, blah, blah. Um, they said, well, great, let's start with all 15 schools. And well, we typically will say, fine, but first we want to make sure that all 15 schools, principals in particular, understand what they're committing to. And here's the list of readiness requirements for getting started in this process. So we have the superintendent or ourselves present those to the school, and then we say, are any of you interested and ready? to engage in this venture of building a three-tier continuum of support for your school. Half the schools say, yep, we're up for it. So we start with that half because we want the initial experience of the school district to be one that's highly positively reinforcing. So we set it up for their initial success. So we start with those eight schools, right? Then you got that one principal over in that one school, you know, and, and and he says, there's no way you're going to come into our school. There's no way. You know, I like, the, I like our, our, board of, our board of discipline or whatever. And, I, you know, and that's, where, that's the way we've done business for the last 25 years. We're going to stick with that. And we say, fine, no problem. All we ask for is you don't get in the way of these other eight schools. We invest in those eight schools. We get them to be successful. Then we go back to the other seven schools. And we say, anybody interested in starting up now? And so out of those seven, half of them says, I think we're ready. You know, we've seen this happen. We'll try. So we model success. There's always going to be that one classroom teacher, one principal, one somebody who openly and aggressively disagrees and doesn't want to commit. And we say, fine, that's your opinion. All we ask for is you don't interfere with what's happening. However, we have a tier three intervention for that person. And that's typically the superintendent, the school board, the principal, the higher up. And we work with them by saying, how can we proactively support the person who doesn't want to participate? It's like the same three-tiered logic we apply on the schools with kids. We don't punish them. We ask for ways that we can help them be successful in the adoption. And it could be that they only do, quote, PBIS in one grade level. It could be that they're only doing it in one classroom to get started. It could be that they're only doing it in one hallway. 
you know, whatever. We'll start with wherever they are. It's a shaping process, obviously. Um, but the idea is to not punish, but instead try to shape, you know, support. Your, your question's a great one because there's no organization that doesn't have somebody who questions what we're up to. Just like applied behavior analysis, question PBIS. You know, they, they should. You know, it's something that you've got to be able to document that there's evidence of the, of the effectiveness of the implementation. Yeah, yeah. One thing on this podcast we hit on is just kind of general skepticism is is something that we we love to foster and keep out there. Um, so I I'm assuming somebody's listening in and be like, I don't know if I buy this. <laughs> um, of course, they yeah. should, and they should be skeptical. Yeah, yeah. Um, but then again, like we also are very into just science data, what's working, um, and so I wanted to kind of bring that up. Cool. What? So can I interrupt for that little point there? Yeah. I, I'm an ABAer and I grew up in a single subject world, right? That's my, if you look at my beta, the first half of my career, I just did single subject stuff. That was my main form of research. However, in our PBIS work, we have invested heavily in group-based research. We have some randomized control trials. Why? Because there's a whole community out there that's skeptical of PBIS practices without evidence from this particular research space. So we have you know, 10 or 12 randomized control trials now um, that have documented the impact of these interventions you know, across these different groups of, and communities. Um, am, I, am I supportive of group-based research? Absolutely, because it helps us convince a group of individuals to get involved. Am I uh, a proponent of doing group-based research? Absolutely. Would I do it myself? Probably not. Yeah, right. <laughs> there's a lot of work yeah, that's um, involved there. <laughs> absolutely, it, it, and it's important work. Don't get me wrong, but I'd yeah. much rather approach a school, and you'll see some of that in some of our, our our documentation where we've actually used school as the subject. You know, we've done some reversals within school and some multiple baselines across school. Just because I like time series data, and I like to be able to look at you know progress and apply applications that way. So. I think the research is important, and I've learned to embrace the group-based research world. I, I, I still am struggling a little bit with the qualitative world, but at the same time, the quantitative world that's group-based, I'm, I'm happy to embrace now. Yeah, we, we try to look at um, there's not a single form of data that is like uh, or way to collect data that is perfect, right? Like they all serve their different purposes, so that really jives. Yeah, I want all our schools, all our teachers, to always put pressure on people like me by saying, show me the evidence. And I really like it when they say, show me the data, because as you know, there's all kinds of levels of evidence. And I want them to be able to say, show me the evidence that will convince me. And what I always push back is, is if Shane said to me, I want, I'm going to use this intervention in my classroom. And I'm going to say, well, show me the research that backs up the evidence for, and show me that it aligns with what you want. He says, well, there's no evidence, but I really like this intervention. So then my next response is typically, are you willing to bet your next month's salary on this investment? <laughs> you know, and if he says no, then I'm going to say that it's not worth testing it on my kids. You know, if he's willing to bet, bet his next month's salary on it, then, that, then I'm, I'm convinced. Okay, go ahead. Try it, right? Because at least he's got something yeah, absolutely. that is important to him that he's willing to invest in this. Yeah. Nice. Um, so yeah, I was in a I was at a conference in Miami um, beginning of February. It's 2018, and th I was talking with some some folks that I'd met there. 
we were getting on the topic of if evidence is something that can be convincing if you value it, but what happens if you're not so into, is there other ways to kind of, you know, convince people to just look at these things like that PBIS has offered a little bit more? I feel like the answer is in the outcomes, like P- your outcomes can speak for themselves. Is that part of it or is there more? Is it just the yeah. evidence that you guys point to? What's that like? Yeah, so your, 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 your point's a good one about, you know, what evidence do you value? Is it other people's opinions? Is it, you know, and so forth? Is it my own experience that has to be part of it? We always start with the research as being the, the starting point, you know, and then we ask, then my always second question is, you know, is demonstrate this, that this is an important intervention for the outcomes for that particular child. How important is this to that kid? And I always like to say, well, when you go to the doctor, your heart is hurting, and you go there, you don't want the doctor to say, well, you know, I was just reading a good housekeeping, but this is an intervention that we might try for that heart pain. Most people, when they go to the doctor, they're going to say, you need to do a test on me. You need to find out what's going on. Give me the data. Then they're going to say, based on those data, what do you think is the best prescription for me? What's the best intervention? Is it surgery? Is it this? Is it that? Is it whatever? And then they're going to say, Who's going to help me do this so that I can be successful at it, which is I call the systems part, right? If the outcome is important, we ask for data. If the outcome is important, we want the best intervention that has been demonstrated to be effective. If the outcome is important, we want the best implementer, the best surgeon, the best neurologist, you know. I don't, you know, I don't want to go in for a, for an operation and have the this expert that I have identified to do the surgery say to me, you know what, I'm going to have this person over here do it instead. He's still learning <laughs> and, you know, and uh, he hasn't really done one yet. But I said, no, this is really important to me. You need to do it, right? You've got to have, when it's an important outcome, you make those kinds of requests. For some reason, you know, social behavior, learning to read, don't carry that same outcome value. And I need to convince teachers that, you know, learning to read, having social skills, being able to problem solve, those are so important that our decisions about the interventions have to be really precise. Our decisions about implementation have to be really high fidelity and so forth. So I try to create those equivalents, you know. Yeah, cool. I like that. So, yeah, I assume the use of metaphors and things like that will help, like you were kind of doing there. If you fly a lot, you get on the airplane, you want that pilot to be going through his or her checklist. <laughs> yeah. Right? You want to make sure the, the maintenance crew has done making sure the plane flies well. You want to make sure that the system, meaning the, the tower over at the end of the runway, they're awake and they're doing their job. Yep. Because everything depends on you getting to Pittsburgh on time and yeah. safely. Yeah. And if, if those parts aren't working, we're in trouble. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's important. I think that goes back to um, just like that, that values piece. Like what do people value when they're making those decisions? We have to value a certain type of decision or a certain type of data when we're making those decisions. I think that, and I think that we, and this may be just my own perspective, but I think the behavior analysts are pretty good at, and I'm probably going to get a lot of hate mail for this, <laughs> but I think behavior analysts are really good at disregarding qualitative data. And I think that that is really impactful for making treatment decisions in context. Like 
while we may be able to collect data on behavior change, like listening to people and how they talk about how they're concerned about interventions or listening to families and talking about what their, you know, what their ultimate outcomes are, like what their ultimate goals are, or it can be really kind of this, this, this nebulous type of data that can be really useful for informing what we're doing on some, on some level. Yeah, and I don't think it's nebulous, actually. You know, I think about, you know, Wolf's and others' work around social validation. That's what, that's what PBS, the original PBIS and PBIS has been all about. You know, uh, PBS was about finding out the impact of an intervention on the kid and the family and asking the family, do you notice a change? You know, it's asking kids or clients and family members, is this an intervention that you understand and are willing to, you know, it's about asking the people in the community for where the child or the adult is working. Do you, what's the impact of this intervention on the, uh, do you notice a change in improvement in the student's ability to navigate that? Those questions, you know, give some, some quality, if you will, to the impact of our choice of intervention, the impact of intervention, the purpose of the intervention, just like Wolf has, has taught us, you know. So, uh, it's important, I think, to kind of think about not just you look at that cool graph and look at that change, that level change between the, you know, A and B. It's about does anybody else notice, you know, and is it is it really something that changes the quality of our dinner time, you know, as a result of that change in behavior? And you don't get there if you don't ask the question. Right. So it, it's formalizing the questions around what's important in settings in which those skills are required. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So I don't think you're going to get in trouble with it. I think it's about saying how does, how does this support our understanding of our interpretation of those data, you know, and the impact. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, one thing I did want to ask you too, uh, I've, I just, as we were doing some research kind of leading up to this, I've been watching a couple of videos of you speaking on YouTube and, uh, and one of the things that kind of a running theme that I've noticed in some of your talks was about culture and how, um, culture impacts PBS. And, and I think that, that in general is a missing piece for our field. Um, I think that we have a hard time kind of talking about culture. And I think that the, the Anthony Biglin book does a really good job of kind of expressing what that looks like, what culture looks like in context for behavior analysis. Um, but I think that, you know, you're the expert. Let's, I would love to hear kind of your take on, on, on culture and what that looks like in schools and kind of how that might impact what you're doing on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. I mean, we're heavily influenced by people like Tony and uh, Steve Hayes, Stephen Hayes and others about thinking about culture. Uh, what we've tried to do is take that kind of foundational knowledge that they've given us and said, how do we apply that to school environments and classroom environments and so forth? Uh, two colleagues of mine, uh, Reed O'Keefe, who's in Utah, and Fallon, who's at the University of Massachusetts, we've, you know, wrote a paper on sort of PVIS and culture, and we tried to put a behavioral spin on it. And Lindsay and Brita and I have said, you know, it's really about understanding that all of us have a learning history. That learning history is based on what we've done in the past, the reinforcements received, the punishment we received, and that learning history influences the likelihood of us engaging in behaviors in the future. And sometimes those behaviors are what others would call inequitable or, you know, inappropriate. Uh, sometimes they are ones that are culturally normative. You can put those kind of labels on those, but it really is our learning history. Just to get narrow around this, I think about my own self. You know, I'm a Japanese American. I was born in California. I'm a third generation Japanese American. My parents grew up during World War II on, in California. They were born in California. 
and they ended up being going to prison internment camp because they were Japanese. That learning experience affected how they raised or shaped my behavior. My behavior is shaped by you know their experience. So I have these certain kind of perspectives around inequities that are happened to certain you know cultural groups because of my learning history. I grew up during the Vietnam War protests. I was part of that California kind of you know openly uh, and you know protesting the war. I went to the University of California Santa Barbara when they burned the Bank of America down during the, that protest. Those learning experiences shape how I behave today. And they represent my Japanese-American culture. They represent my hippie culture. They represent blah, 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 right? Now, that's, and that's not to give an excuse to how I behave now, but it's to say that my behaviors currently that I display now were reinforced in the past by those experiences. So if I know that or somebody else knows that, my wife, my you know, kids, if they understand that cultural influence, they can understand how to respond to my behaviors, how to shape, you know, whatever. So I think that's pretty important for us to think about, that there is a behavioral analytic um, kind of way of conceptualizing a person's development over time. And, you know, I probably have, I, no, not probably, I have my biases. Those biases were shaped by my experiences in the past. Do I need to change those biases? Probably. How do I change those? I need some replacements, you know, and so forth. And my biases are functionally related to these outcomes. You know, I think there's a way to kind of apply this. But um, when I go to schools, I don't talk the way I'm talking to you now. I talk about, you know, we all have these learning histories. Sometimes they're good histories. Sometimes they're bad histories. Sometimes they get us in trouble now. and Sometimes they don't. You know, and sometimes it causes us to make decisions around what a kid does that, that may be not be equitable. Let's step back and talk about how we might interrupt that behavioral chain and, you know, so forth. So I think your point's well taken. Right now, the focus is on school climate and school climate, school culture, classroom culture. Uh, some great work being, is being done by people like Kent McIntosh and Gwen Cartledge and others who are behavioral analysts who are saying, you know, how do we look at disproportionality, um, bias, and operationalize those in terms that allow us to have practices that disrupt those behavioral chains that result in these outcomes that are dis resulting in these disproportionality problems. Okay, so this is perfect. Uh, just a thought that came to mind was, uh, I mean, we're hitting this, uh, you know, what biases, what, where are we kind of coming from? All of us here are formally trained um, and buy into the behavior analytic of worldview and approach. Who, if I could play, you know, devil's advocate on ourselves real quick, who's been valuable outside of that perspective in the development of PBIS or influential on you as well? You know, what other other folks are, are helping make this happen? Yeah, so they're, you know, I, I won't say they're not behavior analysts, but they sort of have a different sort of focus on what they do. But the direct instruction world has been pretty phenomenal into shaping what I think about for behavior. That behavior can be taught. That behavior needs to be taught explicitly. That there needs to be examples and non-examples. That social skills at a grander scale are as conceptual learning just as it is individual behavior. So a whole bunch of behaviors that we call problem solving collectively are this construct called problem solving. You know, anger management is a whole bunch of behaviors that kids have learned to use across settings that collectively are called anger management. So. People like Ed Kemianui and Ziggy Engelman and Doug Carnine, these people are incredible 
direct instruction people that have taught me that there is things to learn from the instructional side, like Janet has taught us, that are important for behavior analysts to be able to apply. Uh, I teach social skills like I teach reading. There's no difference in how stimulus control is established, you know, but I teach it using a direct instruction type of model. I think about um, work from the social skills world. You know, you got people like Phil Strain, Hill Walker, um, Arnie Goldstein, who weren't, you know, hardcore behavior analysts per se, but oh my gosh, they're teaching social skills in a model where you can easily see that we're doing, that we're establishing strong stimulus control by using, you know, SDs and SD minuses and S deltas in order to teach social skills. So I think there have been applications of the behavioral technology in these other areas that have been pretty important in kind of shaping how I think about behavior analysis. Uh, in the world of behavior disorders, I think about people, um, you know, like, like Rick Neal and Steve Furness and others who have been, and Mike Nelson and, and uh, Jim Kaufman who have helped me understand about the world of behavior disorders that have helped me kind of shape you know, how I think about applying behavior analysis to that kind of world of problems in the world of special ed. So there, there's great applications out there that, you know, have taught me how to think about the application of behavior analysis in ways that are palatable to worlds that don't use behavioral language. Are there any uh, big books, thought leaders outside of our world that you're kind of interacting with or consuming or looking to a lot, you know? And this could be like your... You know, the biggest one currently... Yeah, the biggest one is Tony's book right now. I mean, that's been such an influential, um, you know, kind of bringing together the behavioral sciences, you know, taking the best evidence-based evidence kind of practices and merging them together. He sort of bridges the gap between behavior analysis and other kinds of disciplines as well. Uh, but what he does is expand the application of behavior analysis from our... Uh, frankly, kind of our focus on autism to schools now, to public health, to medicine, to business, making it much more, this is what behavior analysis is about. And that's the nurture effect, right? Is that what you're referring to? Okay, yep. cool. Yeah. Tony's, Tony's done some phenomenal work on that in that area. It's kind of getting it out to quote the social media world uh, you know, we're, it's more accessible. Yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously, that's part of this podcast. I've had the opportunity to to be in a symposium with him before at a conference, and he's fantastic. We'll have to get him on here sometime. Yeah. Yeah. I think it'd be great to have on. I think the other world, the other influence has been special education in general. I think about the U.S. Department of Education and OSEP, which is the Office of Special Ed Programs, and their um, a willingness to kind of support the application of behavioral sciences to the work that they're doing in OSEP, meaning special ed, especially our systems work. I mean, three-tiered logic wasn't even being talked about in special ed as something that they should support because they're all focused on quote, kind of individual you know, management or kind of support. And now they're thinking systems-wide about their work in OSEP. The Office of Safe and Healthy Students is doing substance work and uh, school violence work are now also saying, you know, how do the behavioral sciences and the three-tiered logic and the behavioral technology fit uh, into uh, the world of safe and healthy students? Um, and 
substance use and uh, you know and whatnot. That's awesome. cool. That's rad. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, the last question we have is like, what do you want the world to know about PBS? Like, what do you want to talk about? What do you want? Like, you know, what information do you want people to have kind of going into this PBS approach or this PBS model? Yeah, it's a, it's a way of supporting the behavior analytic kind of approach. But one thing we're learning is that whatever you do, it needs to be conceptually grounded. And behavior analysis provides my ground. You know, and it, it, I can defend what I do with a behavior analytic kind of perspective. I can defend my decisions. I can defend my intervention choices. I can defend my, you know, whatever. It's when people take an eclectic approach, they get too broad, you know, and they can't defend their conceptually. I also believe that what's really important is that we have an empirical database that we continue to, to build and support. It's great to take the sort of the social validation approach, but you've got to have an empirical database that allows you to, to have a, the basic toolkit, if you will. And then how we use the toolkit is sort of the systems thing that we're focusing on now. You know, I love our toolkit, and I think our toolkit can continue to grow empirically. But if we don't pay attention to it, to the systems and how we use the toolkit, we're going to be at risk of losing the impact of what the tools can do for us. I think it's important for behavior analysts to start saying, how does the toolkit uh, apply across cultures? Not only within the United States to the Native American population, the immigrant population, to whatever, but also internationally. I mean, we're doing PBIS now in about you know twenty or thirty other countries, and what we're learning is that technology works, but you have to adapt it to the local context or the cultural learning history. You know, you mentioned corporal punishment. There are countries out there that the norm is corporal punishment in home and school. The norm is to keep your kids out of school if, it has a, if they have a disability. So how do we start with that knowledge to be able to, to, to pull, to apply behavioral technology to those environments? You can't criticize them. You have to be able to say that's where we start. That's their baseline. You know, if we criticize, we automatically put up, you know, some barriers that we have to navigate around. And I'd much rather start by saying, you know what, I may not agree with that particular perspective or that norm. But that's the norm we have to work with. So how do you start working on that? You know, One caution I think is important for us is that we are not the solution for all world problems either. Uh, it's so easy to say that behavior analysis is it's the way to go. But you know, we get approached from PBIS, for example, and because of our success for, for the school level and sometimes the communities, we get asked, well, we'd like you to come to our country and solve the HIV AIDS problem. We think that this logic of a continuum makes sense for this problem. And we say, yep, absolutely. This tiered logic of prevention makes sense. But we have no data to suggest that doing PBIS in a tiered system in schools is going to decrease HIV AIDS you know, in your community. We have none. So don't assume that that's going to be the solution. Or for gangs out in the schools, or for violence at home, we have no data. You know, we do have data, though that suggests that we can affect the risk factors that contribute to those likely outcomes. Academic failure, you know, um, antisocial behavior in school, withdrawals, you know, eloping. We know what those risk factors are, and we can affect those. We, have, we can't make that leap from PBIS, ABA to HIV AIDS or solving dandruff or anything else out there that's big. We can say 
what we can we have to be clear about what we can and can't do because otherwise we can overpromise and that really is a risk for us if we over overpromise what we uh, think we can do. I really dig that because we were pretty heavy on the behavior analysis throughout this whole thing, and that's a good way to to kind of wrap it back around. That's perfect. Yeah, I'll make one kind of political thing, and that is the PPIS Center is funded by the federal government. It's the only center right now that's behavior focused that has an impact across the United States, and our job has been about increasing state level capacity to do the work that we're doing at the federal level. We're not convinced that the states have this infrastructure to develop that capacity. The one thing I'd ask the world of behavioral analysts to think about is what's the role of the federal government in providing technical assistance to states, the school districts and communities, the agencies, because without policy, without uh, procedural guides, without you know, the states and districts and others are going to go off and do their own thing. Right now, we have a little bit of control over that because there's this TA center that gives guidance to states. They take it or leave it, no doubt. But at least there's a structure out there. I, I worry about, you know, how do we define the federal government's role in, in the distribution and scaling up the behavioral technology that we all love and dear and care about, you know, and we may and that. That, that goes to the rub about do we push behavior analysis or do we push behavioral sciences? Do we push behavior analysis or do we push prevention? You know, how do we get behavior analysis out there the fast way? And I, I'm not clear that behavior analysis in capital A, capital B is going to be able to get us to scale up what we're interested in scaling up. Yeah. So that's a that's a question you guys can take for the next podcast. Yeah, yeah, I think that'd be awesome. I love getting into that stuff, especially with my activist background. So, like, yeah, I, I, that would be fantastic. How, how can behavior analysts get more politically involved to to know that stuff? How can they increase their knowledge to help impact those policies as they're being made? How can they set up those infrastructures? How can they really make that change on that level? Because I don't know if that's taught enough as well, or people know where to start. Really, I agree. I agree. Fantastic. So take that on, Shane. That's your next job. That's it. You're coming with me. <laughs> I can't do it alone. <laughs> That's right. I think that is a perfect place to end. So I just wanted to say one last thank you for your time. This is huge. It took us a while to kind of get looped around with everyone being so busy. So I really appreciate that. And then um, I'd also ask just where, if someone wants to go to get some more information, what's the main website or the, you know, is there a certain social profile? Like what is, where is that? Right. So I'll just say two things. One is uh, just to reinforce you guys. You know, I think it's great that you're doing these little podcasts because it's it's another variation for me of how do you get behavior analysts out to the world in, in terminology or examples or whatever that'll that's a little bit easier to chew on. You know, we we do research studies, we do technical briefs, we do these things that represent what we care about, but it's not accessible to a lot of to a broader audience. And I think podcasts. And the social media way is, is an excellent way to kind of generate that kind of enthusiasm, maybe, or exposure, or orientation. So pat yourselves on the back, take the rest of the week off, whatever. <laughs> uh, I think it's, it's kind of cool what you guys are working on. Thank you. Um, if, if you're interested in more information, I think there are a number of sources. The PBIS Center that I mentioned earlier is probably the, the main kind of home for what I do. So it's pbis.org. 
Um, that's the easiest place to get access to. But however, I'd also recommend that anybody who's listening, there are other local websites that oftentimes are much more locally oriented. So there are regional websites like the Midwest PBIS site or the Northwest PBIS site or the Mid-Atlantic or the Northeast site where I'm associated. There are also great state-level PBIS sites. Those are also yeah. great places to get access to content. So the, the national site kind of gives you the big picture and some, and you can drill down pretty well, but it's pretty dense. Uh, the local sites can give you much more local kind of information. We'll make sure that we link uh, um, as many as we can find, but also I'm sure we can find a place where there's a lot of them all kind of linked out somewhere, you know, like we can find a main one. Uh, I was going to say with, with 26,000 schools, <laughs> um, I'd expect there to be a lot, a lot of people to mention. Um, <laughs> um, cool. All right. With that said, um, this is Ryan O and this is Shane Spiker and this is why we do what we do. You've been listening to why we do what we do. Why We Do What We Do is supported in part by our amazing patrons. Thank you. If you like what you heard, consider becoming a patron by heading to patreon.com slash podcast. You can also rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts or share this episode with your friends. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Find us at podcast on your favorite social media platforms. You can learn more about this and other episodes by going to www.podcast.com. There, you'll find links as well as detailed and shareable show notes. Why We Do What We Do is researched and produced by Abraham, Ryan O, Shane, and Miranda. Artwork and logo design by Andrew Pollock at nogdesigns.com. Video and production assistance from Tyler Brassier with music courtesy of Justin Greenhouse. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have an awesome day.